Last week, um, we were talking about the series, Unalienable, America's Ongoing Fight for Liberty, and we talked about uh, our pursuit for freedom, our fight for freedom, the battle over freedom. And I just want to, to say that many times in our sermon preaching, we talk about uh, personal righteousness or, per- or how to grow personally or how to personally be a better Christian, and there's nothing that matter with those devotional kind of sermons. But how many of you know there are also times to talk about our corporate life together? Not just as Christians, but as Americans. And I had somebody come up to me last week, and I appreciated this. They said, you know, Pastor, I'm so glad to hear a message that actually celebrated American patriotism that it's okay to love my country. And I just need to say again, amen. We understand, and I was standing in the pulpit here as a pastor, we understand that we're, we're citizens of two kingdoms, amen? We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which is our primary identity, and that, of course, is eternal. But how many of you know we're also citizens of the United States of America? And I don't know about you, but I'm sure excited about that. There's lots of places we could be finding ourselves as citizens today, but I've tried to say for the last month, you won't find a place better on the entire planet in terms of freedom and liberty and the prosperity that goes with that. We are incredibly blessed. And so I want to tell you, it's okay to wave your flag. It's okay to love your country. It's okay to sing loud. It's okay to celebrate the 4th of July, apple pie, America, and the whole nine yards. Uh, We're not making an idol out of America, but we are called to love our nation and celebrate celebrate our nation and work for her good. And I just want to say unapologetically that the church should be the place where the patriots are created. Uh, They should come out of the local church, people that love God with all their heart and love their neighbor and love their nation that God has blessed them in. Now, that's not saying we don't have problems. We're going to get to that in just a moment. We do. We have lots of them. But you know what? Don't ever stop loving America. The minute you stop loving her, you're no good for her any longer. Um, so I want to encourage you, keep loving your country and keep loving what God intends to do in this country uh, and keep praying that God would have his purposes for our nation. Now, you know, St. Augustine said this, if you want to determine the spirit of a people or what marks a corporate group of people, find out what their common love is. That's a, that's a good counsel, is it not? Indisputably, if you ask, what do Americans love? I'll tell you what we love. We love freedom. Can anybody say amen to that? We are our freedom-loving people. I like what Oz Guinness wrote. He said, freedom is and always will be America's animating principle and her chief glory, her most important idea, and her greatest strength. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to be a part of the land of the free and the home of the brave. Uh, That is part of our national identity. We are a free people. The question becomes this, and this is what I want to focus on this morning. How do we sustain the freedom and the prosperity that we've been given as citizens of the United States of America? There's four words engraved on the Korean War Memorial in Washington, D.C. Those four words simply and profoundly say this, freedom is not free. Can you say amen to that? Amen. 
Freedom is not free. There is a long legacy of people that died for the ideals that make this nation great. We pause on Veterans Day. We pause on Memorial Day. We pause on various times throughout the year simply to pause and say thank you to people we've never had the privilege many times of meeting. Uh, we thank our veterans who, who we have met, many of them in recent wars, that, that uh, uh, were willing to lay down their lives for our freedom. But freedom is not free. And George Washington, in his first inaugural address, he, he used this phrase. He said, the sacred fire of liberty has been placed in the hands of the citizens of this republic. The sacred fire of liberty. I want you to, to, to imagine something with me. Imagine you were given a candle that has been lit, and your job is to hold that candle and to faithfully make sure it stays lit and then to pass it to the next generation. How many of you know when you're holding a simple flame in your hands, that flame is, is fragile? It's fragile to wind. It's fragile to, to rain. It's fragile to the elements. It's fragile to neglect. In other words, you have to make sure fire by nature has got to be tended to or the fire goes out. We use this illustration. The word cherish means literally keeping the fire burning. In your marriage, if you don't keep throwing wood on your fire, the fire burns out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You have to tend to these things. Things that matter need eternal vigilance. And freedom is so fragile that to be handed from one generation to the next to be placed in the hands of the American citizens is no small thing and so I'm glad we have a lot of young people in this room today because listen to me what I'm going to preach to you today you have a critical part to play in the future of this nation and the liberties that we've enjoyed for over 200 years now in this country so this message is a multi-generational message it's about taking the freedoms that we have the liberty the candle of liberty and making sure it does not go out in your generation and not falling. You know, we sang in our worship this morning, I need to be reminded. How many of you know Americans need to be reminded of how blessed we are? We need to be reminded of the freedoms we enjoy and the opportunities that we have. And many times when you're raised in this country, you take it for granted. That's why I keep telling you, get a passport and get out of Dodge and go figure out that you're not in the worst nation on planet Earth. You're not being oppressed. You're not being, you know, mistreated. You have unprecedented opportunity in front of you, dropped into your lap. And every one of us is more blessed than 99% of the world. That's what we need to remind people about, lest we take it for granted and we lose it. Now, our founding fathers understood that as free people, we have no one to blame for the loss of our liberties but ourselves. This is what Abraham Lincoln said. As a nation of free men... We must live through all time or die by suicide. In other words, you either maintain the freedoms that you have or you die by suicide. Well, what's suicide? It is a self-inflicted wound. Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, said, History shows that all great nations commit suicide. Os Guinness said, The problem is not the wolves at the door, but the termites in the floor. How many of you have recognized our problem right now as Americans is not any outside force? Nobody compares to American military prowess. We don't have any serious competitors. Nobody compares to American economic prowess. We don't have any serious competitors. Our enemies are not outside of this country. Our enemies are inside this country. 
we have termites eating at the floors even now. Have you heard them gnawing? Have you, have you noticed the weakness? If you watch the news, you realize the termites are everywhere in America right now. And what great thinkers in history past have understood was that a great nation's greatest enemies are not outside, they're inside. They're right within us. Sometimes they are us. We become our own worst enemies. What they meant was that unfettered freedom... That's freedom without restraint, freedom without responsibility, could actually become our Achilles heel, leading to license, which we see now, triviality, corruption, and an undermining of all authority. The Bible says this in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. In this verse, there are two kinds of freedom that are described. The first kind of freedom is negative freedom, which is freedom from. This is what Americans major on. This is the spirit, uh, kind of the anarchist spirit of the hour right now. Freedom from means freedom from restraint, uh, freedom from control, freedom from tyranny, freedom from external force. In other words, this is the spirit. No one's going to tell me how to live my life or what I can do or what I can't do. I mean, you know, that's negative freedom. That's freedom from. Now, I don't know about you, but if we wouldn't have had a little bit of that freedom or that spirit of negative freedom, we would still be uh, Brits, all right? We'd still be saying, God save the king. But thankfully, we have a little bit of that. But how many you know that can, that can go to seed in a hurry? And it, be, it can become very selfish and very self-centered. But there's also something called positive freedom, which is not freedom from, but freedom for, Freedom is not the permission to do what you want, but the power to do what you ought. I'll say that again. Positive freedom is not the freedom to do what you want. It's the freedom to do what you ought to do. How many know there's a huge difference? Which of those is more positive? The latter, I hope you'll understand. It's the freedom to live the way God has called you to live and to be responsible with what God has entrusted you with. Positive freedom involves a vision for the common good. And can I just share with you, what I'm trying to drive home is that the church is essential in the sustaining of our liberty as, as Americans. If the church goes to sleep, this nation has no hope. And if we don't return to a positive freedom, a freedom of a corporate vision of why we have freedom in the first place. See, I don't know about you. But when I talk to my brothers and sisters overseas who don't have any of the freedoms that we have, and I, ha I share the gospel, and I'm, I have the gospel on television and radio, and I have multiple translations of the Bible, and I have Kindle, and I can download books by just hitting buttons, and I got books, and I can read, and I can worship with you, and I have all this freedom and opportunity. You know what it does to me? It creates an incredible sense of duty in my heart. I just have my brother in Pakistan begging me to come over before the end of the year to launch six roar schools to teach the Bible all across Pakistan. And as they're starting to do crusades again, he's saying, Pastor, can you come this year? I said, I can't come this year. Let's look to 2021. He goes, can you come in December? I start laughing. I said, December is not next year. It's this year. He goes, all right, you can't come in December. He said, can you come in November? He will not give up because listen to me. There's a desperation. And you know what? When I'm telling him, our people have been so generous. We have resources. We want to bring resources. We want people off brick kilns. We want people getting the Bible. We want to start Bible schools. Where does this passion come from? Because I'm a free man. 
And I have privilege and responsibility. And I'm excited about it because, listen, I have positive freedom. I have not forgotten that the reason we're blessed is to be a blessing to the nations of the world, to help the oppressed, to liberate the oppressed. That's who we are. And if you lose your sense of common identity, you become a selfish pig. And we have a lot of oinking going around in our nation right now. The paradox of freedom, hear this, is that the greatest enemy to freedom is freedom. Let me connect some dots here. You know, in a, in a free society, our liberties are maintained on two levels simultaneously. Number one is the level of our constitution and our separation of powers. I'm grateful that the founders understood because they were biblically immersed. They understood human wickedness and they understood why we cannot concentrate power. And the genius of our Constitution, although it was imperfect when it was written, the genius was that they understood you cannot trust fallen human beings with unlimited power. We have a constitution. It is a great constitution. It is a work of genius. It has survived for over 200 years. Uh, it is awesome. But you cannot maintain a constitution without the convictions in the hearts of your citizens. In other words, if you lose a love for freedom and liberty and responsibility in the hearts of the citizens, the constitution eventually becomes worthless. Have you ever heard people say, well, I don't need to get married. Uh, marriage is just a piece of paper. You know, marriage is just a piece of paper. Well, on one level, if in your heart there is no sense of holiness about marriage, no fear of God, no sense of covenant relationship in your heart, no willingness to commit yourself to another person for the rest of your life, then it is just a piece of paper. It's a worthless piece of paper. But when the convictions are in the hearts of the people, a marriage covenant becomes something that's holy. How many of you know it's the same thing with people in a constitution? When there's a conviction in the hearts of the people about a common vision for freedom, you hold those things in esteem. So you don't walk on your flag. You don't burn your flag. You don't burn the Constitution. You don't burn these things because there is a, there's a conviction in the hearts of the people that there's something holy to which we've all been called to work on together. And so burning or disregarding things because you don't have an appreciation for it does not help our common life together. It destroys it. And so you hear people now saying, burn everything down, burn everything down. Well, that's a worthless view of the future. Burn everything down. How about a productive view of no, let's keep working on the corporate dream together based on positive freedom moving forward and let's build something that's beautiful together. If we lose the together part, we lose our nation. And that's what we're fighting for right now. We have fundamental laws like constitutions, and then we have habits of the heart. We have character of our leaders. And how about this? The character of our citizens. Now, this is the amazing thing about freedom is the moral challenge that freedom faces in every generation. Follow with me on this because it's quite an interesting situation. Freedom requires order and restraint. Can we get an amen on that? It's not, it's not unrestrained. Yet the only restraint that doesn't contradict or violate freedom is self-restraint. In other words, if you're restrained by something outside of you, it actually works against freedom. The only kind of freedom that supports freedom is self-restraint. In other words, it's, free, it's the limitations you place on yourself. 
But what's interesting is the very thing that freedom undermines is the very thing that happens when it flourishes. In other words, what leads to a lack of self-restraint? Can I tell you what leads to lack of self-restraint? Blessing. You got stuff, you got money, you got time, you got freedom. What happens? You lose restraint. How many of you know we've seen this with money grabs? We've seen this with economic busts. We've seen this with stock market, you know, busts and everything else. The real estate market that blew up. It was all because people were going after easy, fast money. Greed, 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 greed. In other words, the very blessing that brings uh, the freedom that brings the blessing is the blessing that undermines the freedom, and it works in a vicious cycle. Self-government is synonymous with being self-controlled. A person who demonstrates self-control doesn't need external coercion to regulate his or her attitudes or actions. Can I just tell you this little history lesson here? The reason we have resisted a large, bloated federal government is because when you look to a large, bloated federal government to take care of your problems, it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of lack of self-control. It's a sign you can't run your own life. You need Washington to run your life. It's a sign of weakness. The bigger our federal government gets, the weaker our people become. And the more enslaved we become. Listen, this is why Christians have never been in favor of being controlled by Washington. We prefer being controlled in Crown Point. Not even by Indianapolis. Local people taking care of their own business and their own communities, making their own decisions, not almighty Washington, D.C., solving everybody's problems. Self-control. Men, to the degree that we cannot control ourselves, that's to the degree that our families fail, our marriages fail, we fail at work. In the Bible, one of the greatest examples of failure of self-control was Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn son uh, of Jacob, and this is what Jacob prophesied over his firstborn. This is Genesis 49, verse 4. But unstable and reckless and boiling over like water in sinful lust, you shall not excel or have the preeminence of the firstborn. Why? Because you went up to your father's bed with Billa, and you defiled it, and he went up to uh, he went up to my couch. Literally, Reuben was uncontrolled or boiling over with lust. And can I just say this? The biggest issue in America today that's driving a lot of our perverted policy is our perversion, our sexual perversion, and our appetite that we continue to pursue irregardless of what the Word of God says about sexual ethics. We're going to get into that next week. Next week, I'm going to talk about three candidates you cannot ever vote for, all right? My goal is to offend you on a greater degree as we get closer to the election day. I'm I'm ramping up to it. A man that cannot control his sexual appetite is a man who sets himself up for destruction. Reuben lost the birthright because he slept with his father's concubine. He lost it all. He did not have self-control. The Bible says for spiritual leadership, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, uh, a person in consideration for spiritual leadership must exercise self-control and live wisely and have a good reputation. I mean, no, Joseph, on the other hand, was a perfect example of somebody from that family who exercised great self-control on numerous occasions. But if a man cannot control his own appetites, 
He's a man that will not be successful in this life. He's a man that will continually explode. And how many of you know part of what the gospel does is Jesus gives us the ability to deal with those boiling passions because he gives us greater passions, passions for him, passions for righteousness. This is why I'm saying this whole push for self-government is impossible apart from a godly people. The reason our nation, the termites are eating the floor is because we have a nation of people who no longer can control their appetites. And those types of people will never control their appetites until they have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-government is God's desire for all of us. But those who will not rule themselves by God's laws and God's standards are uh, ultimately going to be ruled by somebody else. Listen to the word of God in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this should shock us. This is, this, this is what God thinks about certain issues in our culture today. Understanding the fact that law is not enacted for the righteous person, righteous people don't need the law. But for lawless people and rebellious people, for the ungodly and sinful, for the irreverent and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, For kidnappers and slave traders, we might put sex traffickers, for liars, for perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's the people who are supposed to be on the other side of the law. And I'm going to get into next Sunday. If certain laws get passed this next election cycle, you're going to be on the opposite side of the law because you're considered evil instead of the people God said were performing evil acts. All right? This is very, very important. We're talking about preserving liberty as a nation. All right? The law is for people who can't control themselves. That's who the law exists for. That's why we need to be born again. That's why we need to have the chains on the inside. And that's why our founding fathers understood what I'm getting ready to talk about, that freedom requires uh, what Os Guinness calls a golden triangle. And I'm going to give you the triangle today uh, as we wrap this up. All right. Our founders believe that self-government of this republic rests on the self-government of the citizens. And therefore, faith is indispensable to freedom. All right. Point number one, freedom requires Virtue. Freedom requires virtue. Benjamin Franklin, one of the least uh, religious of the founders, said this, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Only virtue can supply the self-restraint that is an indispensable requirement for liberty. Look at what James Madison said. I, some of you came up to me last week. You said, Pastor, there's so many great quotes I couldn't keep up. I'm going to torment you again this week. All right, so Get your phone out and take pictures of these slides and take them home because this is incredible wisdom from our leadership. James Madison, is there no virtue among us? If there be not, we are in a wretched situation. No theoretical checks, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. That is an illusory or impossible idea to achieve. He said, if there's no virtue in the people, then all of our laws are nothing but paper. They're meaningless. There has to be virtue in the people. And one of my favorite quotes, some of you have heard this one, it is so powerful, by, uh, by Edmund Burke. Men are qualified for liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. 
Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more there is without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Here's why. Their passions forge their fetters. What this is saying is, if we cannot control ourselves, we will be controlled. We'll be controlled by things outside of ourselves. I don't know about you, but I love it when my children reach the age when if they have to be somewhere, I don't have to be their alarm clock. I don't have to be their driver. I don't have to be their conscience. I don't have to be their reminder. Anybody appreciate that? Come on, I actually have some dads saying, hallelujah, amen. I love it when I, I actually call and one of my children says, yeah, Dad, I have my alarm set. I will be up. Hallelujah. Because listen, the goal of maturity is to be a self-governing person. A self-governing person. If you cannot govern yourself, there are external people that will step in and govern you for you. Like what happens when you go over the speed limit and you get pulled over? The officer says, I'm sorry, but that sign did not govern you. Therefore, I must govern you, and you get a nice couple hundred dollar ticket, right? That's an encouragement to be a self-governing person so that they don't have to do that any longer. The point is this, to the degree that we can't control ourselves, somebody outside of us will control us because our passions will forge our chains. When a man is entrapped with lust of whatever kind. He is not a free man. I mean, it's the spirit of the Lord that brings liberty. When a person is entrapped by sin, they're no longer free. That's where government comes in, and that's where government has to do what government does. If you don't deal with the the passions of the human heart, uh, you're going to have big government and lots of laws. That's why every year when I keep thinking, we we went from a part-time legislature in America to full-time political people who spend decades and decades in Washington, and their whole goal is to write laws. What a terrible thing we've created. We hire people who feel like their only job is validated when they write legislation. How about if we send them home and let them not write laws for a while? We have enough. What a dreadful thing we've created. All the new laws, uh, boundaries, legal things, loops we got to jump through every year because we simply won't govern ourselves. We want people to take care of us. That's a problem. John Adams said this, and you need to hear this, the foundation of national morality must be laid in private families. Where does morality happen? Where Where is virtue formed? It's formed around the dinner table. It's formed with moms and dads and their kids sitting around a dinner table talking about the Lord, talking about life, talking about the challenges we face. It's not formed in public education. It's not formed in Washington, D.C. How many of you know you do not want Washington, D.C. telling you what's moral and immoral? This is why the dinner table is so important. And this is why every Marxist movement and we've seen a number of them arise recently. Marxist movement. Marxist movements, by definition, seek to destroy the nuclear family. Why? Because there's another power broker. It's called the state. They want the state to run your house, the state to tell your kids what to do and what not to do. So why we should, hear me, hate with a passion. Marxist ideology, socialist ideology. It's anti-God. It's not just one party or the next. It's anti-God, and it destroys the nuclear family. 
We should be working to build the family. This is where the church's sweet spot is. This is where we're the, we're, we're the shining, uh, c- coming to the rescue in the church. We're the people who should know about marriage and family and loving our kids and loving our spouse and being self-controlled. It's in the church. It's around the dinner table where values and virtues are formed. And yet, what is the biggest problem in our nation right now? So I'll tell you, it's the loss of the father and the destruction of the nuclear family. That is the problem. And it's because men have lost self-control. That's the problem. We have the situation today where we, we value competence over character, where we feel like the character of the leader doesn't matter. And I just want to tell you this. If you can't trust a man to treat his wife properly, why would you trust him with your liberties and your freedom and your future if a man can't treat his wife properly. Now listen, we've fallen way far down. Our standard is so low right now. Um, So I'm not picking on either candidate or either party. I am saying this, private character matters uh, even more than public competence, although public competence should be a baseline minimal standard as well. But private character does matter. Washington said this in his farewell address, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to support, subvert rather these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. I love to paraphrase this. What he's saying is this. No one should bear the title of patriot who does not love God and morality, religion, virtue. If these are not things on that person's lips, they're not a patriot. Now, how many of you know we're the complete opposite today? We're attacking a dear woman with seven kids, two of whom she adopted that, that are from Haiti, and we're accusing her of being racist, and we lost our minds. We're worried that she actually believes her Catholic faith, and it might spill over into how she lives her life. This woman's a patriot. We should be celebrating her, not attacking her. second point I want to get to is virtue requires faith. The founders believe that if freedom requires virtue, then virtue in turn requires faith at least of some sort. Again, I quote Franklin. He said, if men are so wicked as we now see them with religion, what would they be like without it? All right, not the greatest compliment, but you understand what he's saying. If godly people sometimes don't live like godly people, how about ungodly people? Uh, they are our problems. And can I just tell you this? You know, when I ran for office and other Christian people run for office, we always, always get chided that we need to keep our faith separate and blah, 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 blah. Because you Christians, we can't trust you to serve the public arena because your faith might spill over, your virtue might spill over. That would be really bad for all of us. Now, let me tell you something. The most dangerous people to elect are godless people who have no affection for anything greater than their particular power base or party. Those people are scary, dangerous. And people that don't have a genuine love for Christ and a love for a greater kingdom and a fear of God are the people you and I should fear the most and they're people we should never, ever vote for. Godless people are dangerous people. 
And what concerns me now is there is such a grab for power in America because there's nobody greater than that. You know, in our state constitutions, in many of our state constitutions, you had to pledge on oath and declare that you believed that Jesus Christ was Savior and that he was coming back to judge the living and the dead and that someday you, politician, would stand before him and give an account for the way that you govern. How I many of you know that kind of realization puts the fear of God in a man or woman who is going to step into public office because they realize they might get away with something here and pulled under the wool of the citizens, uh, under the eyes of the citizens, but you will never uh, hide it from God and someday you're going to stand before him and you will give an account for your life. Well, we don't get to remind people publicly about that, but I think there's one place on planet earth where somebody should be saying those things and I think it's the pulpits of America that should be blazing with fire and authority and prophetic uh, truth, putting that in the hearts of our leaders. That yes, you will be judged. And yes, you are incredibly dangerous if you fail to bow your knee to an authority greater than yourself. It's why, by the way, we're supposed to pledge on this book. We've had some uh, aberrations to that, people being uh, 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 you know, cute with that. But I wouldn't follow anybody's leadership who doesn't place their hand on the authority of God's word and swear to an oath. That's what this is. There's nothing higher in the land than this. That's what that means. So uh, while we have no religious test, I'll tell you this, it makes me nervous when you have people who who profess other faiths who swear on their books, but not on the book in this nation. Not that they shouldn't have the right to run, but I'll tell you what, we should certainly have a population that has enough sense to elect people that have the fear of the Lord. That was real popular. All right. John Adams says this, We have no government armed with powers capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution. Let's look at this picture. As a whale goes through a net, our Constitution is designed only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for any other. That is a powerful statement. We have a lot of people who are in a whale-like form trying to blast through the Constitution. Have you figured out that our Bill of Rights is under attack? Our First Amendment's under attack? Our Second Amendment's under attack? There are those who think the Constitution's out of date, uh, that want to throw it all away. Uh, there are people that want to pack the court and turn the court into a super, basically a, a, a super Congress making with superpowers to create their own little laws, all nine of them or 12 of them or 15 of them or however many they want to have. I mean, you know, the very foundation of our nation's stability are under assault as I speak. And here's the problem. They won't be restrained apart from a virtuous people that love freedom and that love Jesus Christ. That's why the church is so important. That's why we have got to show up and we are, we, our voices have to be heard. John Jay, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court and president, uh, you ready for this? And president of the American Bible Society. Our first Supreme Court Justice also was president of the first American Bible Society in America. He would not even be able to be considered for a Supreme Court Justice today because of that. This is what John Jay said. No human society has ever been able to maintain both order and freedom, both cohesiveness and liberty, apart from the moral precepts of the Christian religion. 
Should our republic ever forget this fundamental precept of governance, men are certain to shed their responsibilities for licentiousness, wicked living, loose living, and this great experiment will surely be doomed. These are powerful statements. In other words, you cannot keep the cohesiveness of our nation together unless there is a positive vision for the future that's rooted in the Word of God. As soon as you lose that, you have a nation divided. That's exactly what we have right now. And I just want to drive this point home because this is what burdens me this morning. We cannot go on assuming from our seed and our children, our grandchildren, that the blessings we currently enjoy are going to be theirs. Because that, that flame of liberty has to be passed from one generation to the next. And I don't know about you, but I am deeply concerned for where we're headed. I'm not fearful, and I'm not putting my hope in either party, because both parties need reformed. But I am deeply concerned because we are not promised to go on with unending blessing just because we're Americans, which is why we need to pray, which is why we need to return, which is why we need to be engaged, which is why the pulpits have got to speak on these issues and not be afraid of telling people the truth, even though the truth is not all that popular even in the church much longer. But we tell the truth anyway. Why? Because we love freedom and we love liberty and we care about people and we want to see this nation be a great blessing to the world. Let me end with this last part of the triangle. We said freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. But I end with this. It's equally important. Faith requires freedom. What I mean by this is simply the point of religious liberty. We're going to drill into this next week deep, all right? I'm amazed that many pastors will not touch the issues we're talking on today when what, what rests upon my ability to do what I'm doing is religious liberty. If religious liberty is taken away, I will be arrested on a Sunday morning for preaching on the wrong parts of the Bible. And if you're going, Pastor, you're being dramatic. No, this is already happening in Europe and places like that. And yet... If pastors will not touch these issues when the preaching of the gospel rests on religious liberty, does it not? Then there's a, there's a problem. What makes America unique is that our founders recognized that you cannot coerce people to believe in God. You can't force people to follow a state or national religion. You have to give people the freedom of conscience to make choices for themselves. And I want to share something powerful here. Your conscience, that area where you relate to God Almighty, is holy and government can't touch it. Government can't touch it because it's outside of the jurisdiction of government. It's the foundation point of liberty. It means government cannot get in your business. It's why we're open right now. It's why we're not putting signs out that say um, some government official says you have to do X, Y, and Z to enter these doors. Baloney. That's not their authority. They don't have that authority. This is where we come to worship God. And we worship God according to the authorities of this house and the dictates of our conscience. Now, some of you are in business. You need to hear me. You're this far away from losing your ability to express your faith out there. And some of you don't care. 
you should care. I'm concerned that my children, when they're considering what their career is, are not going to have certain options if the word public is in front of what they want to do. Because if they don't believe X, Y, and Z about marriage or about sexuality, and they believe the opposite, then they're a bigot and they're a hater, and they're not welcome to work in that arena. So their future gets narrowed because of the attack on their religious liberty. We're going to talk about this next week, because there's three people you cannot vote for. Religious liberty is sacred. It's why, just in case you you know, America has fostered the most diverse place of religious expression on planet Earth. When you go to Saudi Arabia, how many Christian denominations are there? (laughs) None. How many Hindus are there? None. How many atheists are there? None. You know all you find there? Muslims. You know why? Because that's all that's allowed. You go to China. How much religious liberty do you find in China? None. You go to India. Teeny little bit more, not much. How about Iran? How about Iraq? How about North Korea? There's a great place to live, huh? No, they're being slaughtered there if they don't worship the emperor, the dictator. This is the only place on the earth where religious liberty used to be celebrated. Now it's being attacked. Freedom requires freedom of belief and freedom of faith. And let me just tell you, we've always liked those rules because how many of you know Jesus has the greatest power? The Holy Spirit is power. The Word of God, powerful, sharper than any two of the sword. When we live our faith and we share the gospel, people get rocked. People get touched. All I need is the equal playing field. How about you? All I need is freedom. That's all Jesus needs is freedom. It's interesting. What does the Bible instruct us to do? Pray for those in authority, right? So that peace, the result is peace. Why do we want peace? Because when our nation is at peace, I can go up to Brian and I can tell him about Jesus. I can invite him over for dinner. We can go out to eat. Um, I can share with you about, hey, I, uh, we can help with your marriage or whatever the situation. You've already been rocked in your role. But anyway, but my point is this. All we need is freedom, and Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The beauty of our worldview is superior. The fruits of the gospel, superior. That's why I tell people the greatest thing Americans can do, get out of Dodge, get out of here. Go travel somewhere in the world and come back here and kiss the stinking ground when you get back here. Kiss the stinking ground that you walk on because you realize out there, hey, we're not in Kansas, Dorothy. This is not Kansas. Uh, And it's a scary, wicked place. It's a place full of poverty and brokenness and sin. And you know what? America has always been that light on the hill, even in our darkest moments when we're still trying to get our own act together. We're still doing good because of our Christian roots and our Christian base. And I, I just, stand to your feet. I want to pray for us, if you would. I'll tell you, my burden and my hope at the same time is that God would not turn his back on us. When I think of the good this nation has done, even in our brokenness and even in our 
our mixture, even in our selfishness. We have been the hope of the world. The gospel has gone out of this nation to all the nations around the globe. There are people from every nation who can say, thank God that some American was moved by God Almighty to go and to bring the gospel to my people, to my house, and I'm saved because of it today, and my life, and my family, and my community has been transformed. That's the hope of the gospel. That's, that, in light of all that's going on in our very wicked America right now, my hope is that the church would awaken, that our hearts would burn with fire again, that we would repent of our own selfishness, that we would embrace the responsibility that God has put in our laps, that we would love, we would speak, we would, we would reform, we would reach out, we would touch people, we would live godly lives, we would make sure that we don't live selfishly, abusing our responsibilities and taking them all upon ourselves in a way that's selfish and irresponsible, but that we would take what God's blessed us with and we would go and we would share it and we would be bold about it, unashamed about it. We would love our country. We would love the freedoms. We thank God for who we are and the opportunity that we have and that our cry would be, God, don't let us waste it. God, the termites, we see the damage all around us everywhere we walk. God, forgive us. God, forgive us. God, forgive us. Lord, we cry out right now for this nation. We cry out for an awakening, Lord. God, help us as the church to be awakened in our own hearts. I pray for young people in here that they would begin to see and have a hunger to understand who they are and where they're from and what this means and why they would never, ever want to let it slip out of their grasp. Lord, help us to be good patriots of this world while at the same time we're good citizens of the kingdom of the next world. And Jesus, I just pray right now, for fire in our hearts and passion in our bellies, for a love for you, Jesus, that would burn bright and strong. I ask you, Lord, to awaken us, awaken me, awaken our church. God, break our heart with what's going on in our country right now. And God, let us be a unifying force in the earth. God, let your church arise. Let your church awaken, God. Let the prophetic voice be returned to your people. Let the pulpits have fire in them again. Let the word of God thunder from your church, O oh Lord. And God, help us to take the truth that you've given to us and to connect it to real life so we can be a blessing to our communities and to our nation. Lord, we pause right now to pray for leaders in America, our governmental leaders our justices. Lord, we pray for them as you've instructed us. God, let there be awakening at the highest levels of leadership in this land. God, let corruption be exposed for your glory. God, remove people from offices who should not be holding them. And God, in the secret places across America, I know you're raising up voices, people that have been hidden, people, Lord, who are the most unlikely people. But Lord, you see them, and you've been training them, and you've been equipping them. And God, we ask you to raise them up for, for this very hour. We love you, Lord. We honor you. We're grateful 
for who we are. We're grateful for our identity as your people and for our identity as Americans. Now, Father, be glorified. Be glorified over these next two weeks. We want to seek your face. And Lord, be glorified in the election. We know that whatever the outcome, Lord, that you still reign over the kings and the rulers of this world. And Lord, we just pray that whatever you're doing, let this be the finest hour for the church so that Jesus gets the maximum glory and that people get blessed, Lord, for the glory of God and the good of the people. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Come on, let's honor the Lord just with a shout of praise.